Good morning. Grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Today marks the beginning of what is known as Holy Week. Holy Week is the most important week in human history. It is the remembrance of the last week of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This week, in 2018, we will gather for three very important worship times. Today, Palm Sunday, celebrating and remembering Jesus' triumphal entry and arrival. Friday night, known as Good Friday, celebrating and remembering Jesus' substitutional death on the cross. And Resurrection Sunday, also known as Easter Sunday, celebrating and remembering Jesus' resurrection from the grave. For our Holy Week focus this year of 2018, I'm calling it Messiah. Today we will look at the promised Redeemer. Friday we will look at the sacrificial Savior. And Sunday we will look at the resurrected Victor. The Messiah is the promised anointed one of God. A a rescuer, a Redeemer, a King who was promised by God, who would deliver a worldwide people from sin and death to life with God and eternal victory. Jesus Christ, God the Son, God in flesh, is the promised Messiah. Messiah is the English translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning anointed one. The Greek word for Messiah is Christos, or in our English translation, Christ. That's what Christ means. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. When we speak of Jesus Christ, we're actually speaking of Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his most known title. It points mankind to the most important work anyone has ever done in history. I want us to know Jesus by this most important title. Um, His name is important. And we'll study it, and we'll even look at it in a moment and see the work of it on Friday night. But to understand him by his title says a lot about who he is, the work of the Messiah. Probably in my life, I'll be most known for the title of pastor. By my family, I'll be most known for my title of husband or father. Your title says a lot about who you are to a group of people. Jesus' title as the Messiah says a lot about who he is to the world. He is the promised anointed one, the rescuer, the redeemer. The work of the Messiah is what mankind has been waiting for since the fall of mankind in creation. The Messiah, the royal anointed one, is the promised redeemer of God's people. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and verse 24, we highlight the reality, the result of the fall of mankind. God, speaking to the great deceiver, Satan, says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. War. Enmity and between your offspring and her offspring. Speaking of her offspring, he continues, he says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel pronouncement in, in Scripture. The promise of the Redeemer, the promise of the victory over sin and Satan. If you look down below that verse, verse 24 he, God, drove out the man from the garden at the, at the east of the garden 
of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what happened at the fall of mankind is this. Mankind's federal head, God appointed Adam as our federal head, our perfect representative. You could say, I feel like I could have chosen someone better. He royally screwed up. And what you need to check is your pride in that. No one had a better choice for our federal head than God. Adam is the perfect federal head. Adam, as a created man, chose sin over God. The consequences of this epic failure means enmity, war between mankind and Satan and sin, and separation from God and eternal life, given in the imagery of being cast out of the garden and the flaming sword turning every which way. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. As a result of Adam's sin, we all enter the world with a fallen nature. The original sin, this original sin is what it's called, is the sinful tendencies, desires, and dispositions of our natural heart, which we are all born with. Therefore, original sin is something inherent in every human being. It is a morally ruined character. We start life with a morally ruined character. When Adam sinned, his inner nature is transformed by sin and rebellion, bringing him to a spiritual death, a depravity which then passed to all who came after him. Just as we inherit genetic or physical characteristics from our parents and ancestors, we inherit our sinful natures from our first parents, Adam and Eve. So through Adam, the inherent inclination to sin enters the human race and human beings are sinners by nature the original sin that we're all born with manifests itself throughout our lives into actual sins lived out practiced sins thoughts words deeds feelings that stand in violation to god's perfect and holy commands important to understand it this way that we are sinners not because we sin but we sin because we are sinners starts broken while a baby may be looked upon as innocent in a modern cultural view a baby is not innocent a baby is guilty because of its inherited sin It hasn't practiced those sins until its selfishness reigns in the middle of the night and beyond. (laughs) King David lamented the reality of our condition in our fallen human nature. He says in Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me at conception. Mankind is enslaved in sin, dead in sin, and trapped to only sin unless we are rescued, redeemed, bought from our sin. In Genesis 3.15, we hear God's promise for the Redeemer, the one who will defeat Satan on our behalf and pay for our sin. Her offspring, he, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, shall bruise your head, an imagery given when you bruise or pounce the head of a snake, a serpent, it's its ultimate demise. You will bruise his heel, speaking of the passion, the, the consequence of, of uh, pain and suffering that the Messiah, the 
the Savior would go through on our behalf. Understand the state of sinners apart from Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer. Understand who we are apart from Christ, apart from a Messiah, from the Redeemer, well described by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11. through 11. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And this is a word for us today. In a modern society, we are guilty of calling wicked people unregenerate who have not submitted their lives to Christ as good in a horizontal way. Do not be deceived. There is no amount of goodness performed on a horizontal that overwhelms who we are before a holy God. We are condemned to death and do not inherit the kingdom of God. Examples of practice sin given by Paul clearly in the New Testament, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. These are evidences of an unregenerate life. One who is still enslaved to their sin, still deserving of eternal death, one who has not been redeemed by Jesus and given new birth. But there's good news that we gather this week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter to celebrate. Look at verse 11 in its entirety. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Messiah, and by the Spirit of our God. Look a few verses lower at verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You, Christian, are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Church, this is good news. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that while we were born sinners, and since then worked very well to sin and earn God's judgment in action and thought and deed and his wrath. God chose in his grace to bring a worldwide people of his choosing out of enslavement and death to sin to be brought out of condemnation and enslavement. They were bought. They were redeemed to be bought or purchased to be brought out of an owed, desperate place. Jesus came to redeem us. See with me this morning the great need of mankind since the beginning, desperate for the promised Redeemer, the Messiah. So what we have is generations and generations of mankind waiting for the anointed one of God the one who would conquer Satan and return us to a right relationship with God. 
Turn with me now to Luke chapter 1. Grab your Bibles this morning. Luke chapter 1 in your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you forgot your Bible or don't have one, we have some by the door. You're more than welcome to grab one to follow along this morning. There's also a blank piece of paper back there if you long to take notes as we dig in. This speaks of the Messiah's arrival. So you have generations and generations awaiting the Messiah, and now the announcement comes that he's here. The angel said to her, do not be afraid. Verse 30, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Matthew's Gospel says it this way. Um, the angel speaking to Joseph in a dream. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. His name, the name of the Messiah is Jesus. Yeshua. Which means Yahweh saves. God saves. We're going to focus on salvation on Friday, but today I want to focus on the arrival of Christ. We're in chapter 1 of Luke, and so look a little further with me at a very sweet moment in, in what God has ordained to give us in His Holy Word. Here we have in verse 68 through 79, Zechariah's prophecy given to him by the Lord about Jesus. Luke 1, 68-79 And his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all our days. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Powerful, is it not? Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, speaking of the promise of old. The covenant of God. He's talking about the privileged place his son will be given to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. The Redeemer. Church, we are so many years after the arrival of Jesus that I think we can miss the impact of the arrival of the Messiah. Generations and generations and generations waited for him to come. The triumphal entry we celebrate today, the arrival of the Messiah, the Redeemer, our only hope for life with God is everything. If he doesn't come, if he hasn't come, then what hope do we have? But he has come. Now fast forward with me from Jesus' birth and Zechariah, speaking of John the Baptist, leading out before his ministry. Now the ministry has begun. Look with me at Matthew 16. Another gospel nearby, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Matthew 16, verse 13. Towards the end of Jesus' three-year ministries with the disciples on the road, discipling them, raising them up, teaching, performing miracles. Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, let me pause there. Often the Bible's authors give us location references. But this one is particularly interesting when we understand in that culture what comes with it. The setting Jesus chooses to have this very crucial conversation with his disciples he's about to have is not a mistake. It's not happenstance. The district of Caesarea Philippi, which lies about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, was something very unique in that day. In the hills of Caesarea Philippi, it was scattered with temples of the ancient Syrian Baal false god. As much as 14 temples would have littered the landscape all around them. Not only were the Syrian gods worshipped there, but there's a cavern nearby that was said to have been the birthplace of the Greek god, Pan the god of nature. Another false god conjured by man. Caesarea Philippi's original name, going back further, was Panias, after Pan, the god of nature. Another huge temple that would have stood there in Jesus' day of white marble built by Herod the Great and dedicated to the worship of Augustus Caesar. So Jesus is standing in a place that's literally convoluted and and filled with temples dedicated to the worship of false gods or elevated men. And he asked his disciples in this setting, who do people say that I am? He's taking the pulse of the culture. He wants to get the disciples talking, getting feedback about what people are saying about him, getting them sharing. And, and the disciples ring off, as we read through the text, a, a number of things that people had murmured about who Jesus might be. John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets we see in verse 14. Jesus was being identified with all kinds of important men of God, but none of these identifications were correct. The popular opinion of the culture was that Jesus was unique, obviously, but still just another man with a very special set of skills. Maybe like Jason Bourne or Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. Sorry, culture reference. Jesus asked the disciples then, after hearing these random answers, but who do you say that I am? In the original Greek, the emphasis is on the word you. Jesus is cutting right to the chase. He says there's, in this, the way he says this, there's no room for safe speculation or generalities not hiding behind what other people are saying, he puts them on the spot with a direct question. Who do you say that I am? Now what's important about this question is, I believe it to still be potentially the most important question that any of you or us today will ever be asked. Who do you say Jesus Christ is. How would you answer that? Now, we would quickly agree, if I pulled the room, that we too are surrounded in our modern landscape by figurative, towering temples of false worship things we idolize, things we look to for our hope, our status, our healing, our help, our enjoyment, 
our purpose, things like our careers or our families, our physical looks, our health, our bank accounts, our comfort, where we live, our entertainment. Realize Jesus is not just asking for a Sunday school answer. If when I asked that question a moment ago, you said I could answer, I could say rightly who he is. Again, that so could the demons. The fact that you have the right answer out of your head knowledge is grossly insufficient. Who is he to your life? Because of who he is, what does that mean to you? What has it changed about you? How does it motivate you? He's really saying, among all this, all these things that are calling for your love, your attention, your faithfulness, your worship, among all this, who am I to you? If Jesus was just a wise teacher of history, just a prophet of old, as many today will boldly claim that he was, then it might not matter as much. Probably really doesn't. Who is Jesus to you? But if Jesus really is the Messiah, the promised one of God that all of mankind has been desperate for, then who Jesus is to you is everything. If he really is God in flesh, then we have to lean in this morning. We have to do real business with this. We can't keep making casual headway with these things. It must must wreck us. It must cause us to, to lean in and really make war with whatever we've done to fit God into our boxes, to fit church and religion into our boxes. Peter's answer to Jesus, Peter, the quick-to-speak spokesman often of the disciples, is known as or referred to as the Great Confession. A statement of his belief as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Simon Peter replied, verse 16, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. With these words, Peter declares that Jesus is the Christos, the anointed Redeemer. What Peter is saying here is Jesus is not just a man with a special set of skills. He's saying, You are the awaited king, not just a king, the king, the king to end all kings. Hearing Peter. Declaring this about Jesus causes Jesus to say a very interesting thing in response. Matthew 16, 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Thereby differentiating it between the demon's proclamation that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, declaring who he is, and separating it in such a way to reveal that God has given you this holy revelation, given you eyes to see and ears to hear. that This is more than just Sunday school head knowledge to you. This has changed your life. Peter is blessed to have an understanding of Jesus' identity, receiving divine insight that Jesus is the Messiah was not something he discerned with his own ability. Why is that so critical? To declare Jesus as the Messiah is a massive declaration in all of human history. 
This is the one. It is not just something that impacts one culture or people. It is a worldwide, historic, unprecedented declaration. Jesus says it is God who qualifies and brings about that truth in you. Therefore, that is not man's idea. It is God's revelation to the world. Church, don't miss the power of the revelation. The long-awaited promised Messiah, the Redeemer, has come. It's not something someone promised from a few years back, like your grandpappy told you, or, or promised from these guys' childhood, and now they're adults and cool, like 20, 30 years later. This, is, this thing we've been hoping for is coming to be promised generations of generations back to the beginning of mankind. Oh, church, I want you to see the gravity and the power of the arrival of the Messiah. That it would wash over you today in the, in the specialness of what the arrival of Jesus really means. That it's not just another Palm Sunday, but it, all that comes with who Jesus is and what he came to do is wrapped up in the arrival. And so now fast forward to that day, that Palm Sunday, given its name by the celebration, the waving of palm branches and the arrival of Jesus to Jerusalem. The day by which Jesus would ride in Jerusalem for the last time before he would be arrested and murdered on the cross. Look with me at Matthew chapter 21, verse 8 through 11. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. In Galilee. There's one phrase that is shouted from the people in this most important arrival of the Messiah to Jerusalem, and it's the word Hosanna. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the highest. In this unique word and Phrase, we sang it earlier, it's, it's a word I've spoken of before, I'm going to speak of it again because I don't want it just to be a church word. I want, I want you to understand its meaning. I want when you say it and sing it to know what you're saying. Like when we say hallelujah, that's not just a generic weird term, it means praise the Lord. Do we know what we mean by these words? Hosanna, what does that word mean? Well, the English translators took the English letters, H-O-S-A-N-N-A, to make the sound of the Greek word. That's how they got to that word. In the Greek, the word Hosanna, the writers used was not a Greek word, but simply used Greek letters to make the sound of a Hebrew phrase. And so when we chase down the roots of this word through the translations, we get to this Hebrew phrase. The men who wrote the New Testament in Greek did the same thing to a Hebrew word that our English translators did to the Greek word. Our word, Hosanna, comes from the Greek word, Hosanna, which comes from the Hebrew phrase, Yashina. That Hebrew phrase is found in one place in all of the Old Testament. Psalm 118, verse 25. And it means, save us, Please. 
It was a cry to God for help. Yashina. Like when you were little and the, the bully kid at the community pool pushed you in before you knew how to swim. Help, save me, help somebody. Back in that day, you would have yelled out, Yashina, Yashina, help, save me, please. Let me read Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, over the generations, something happened to that phrase. In the psalm, what's interesting is the cry for help, save us please, is followed by an exclamation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The cry for who would come help save us, Yashina, was answered almost before the psalmist finished the sentence. Why? Because he's pointing to the one who would come to save his people. He's talking about the Messiah. Over the centuries, that phrase, Yashina, stopped being a cry for help in the ordinary language of the Jews. Instead, it became a shout of hope and exclamation. Exultation, I mean. It, it, it used to mean save, please. It gradually became salvation, salvation, salvation has come. It used to be what you would say when you fell in the pool and didn't know how to swim. Yashina, save me, please. But it began to be a phrase you would say as you would see the lifeguard coming. Yashina, Yashina. In other words, there's salvation coming. It's on its way. It's come. It's the bubbling over of a heart that sees the Savior. And when we sing Hosanna today, post-death on the cross and resurrection, we mean hooray for salvation. Salvation has come. When the people stood that day on the side of the road and shouted like teenage girls at a boy band concert in the 90s, or if you have a hard time relating to that illustration, to face-painted grown men as their quarterback breaks free for the game-winning touchdown. Are you with me? Jubilant nonsense. They gathered at Jerusalem's west gate and waved palm branches. The silliness of the palm branches on Palm Sunday needs to remind your heart of the silly, freed, exuberant salvation's come. It didn't matter what they looked like. It didn't matter that they got their cloaks dirty. They were so beside themselves that this was happening. Hosanna. Son of David is the Messiah, the Redeemer that we've been waiting for. He is our salvation. Hooray for the anointed royal figure, Messiah. The King has come. The anointed one. Salvation belongs to the King and he's here. When they shouted, Hosanna in the highest, what they're saying is, let the angels of heaven join the song of praise. That we see ourselves singing with choirs of angels, exaltation of who he is. Let the highest heaven song sing of hope and salvation, the work of the Lord. Now, they were guilty of something that we are often guilty of. 
the kind of redeemer that many that day on the side of the road thought they were shouting for is often the kind of redeemer that we in our sin and flesh often crave more than anything else. They were so oppressed by their current circumstances, abusive taxation, hierarchical rule, they believed Jesus was showing up to take over the city and claim the throne and change the political and economical and social landscape. And we too can get caught up in wanting that more than anything else. Lord, just send a president or policy or decisions that make my life or my family's life or my church's life better or more free, that would just make us really happy and make life a lot better. But we got to see, church, that that's, while maybe many of those things are good to, to vote for or to work towards, they're not our greatest hope. What policies are you getting stuck in? What, 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 what bandwagon have you jumped on? Not to say that some of those are not worthy bandwagons, but that should be the one you're known less for than the one you're most known for, which is the bandwagon and the testimony and the announcement of the gospel. A good news, a change that changes everything in a person's life, eternally. Jesus didn't come to be the popular leader of the day who would change the political, social, and economical landscape. The kind of leader who would ride his fame to the top. He was altogether a different kind of leader. He was coming not to bring temporary solutions or patches to policies. He was coming to bring life to what was dead. To pay an unprecedented price to redeem a worldwide people. He was coming to redeem us from our spiritual bondage. To bring what was totally and utterly lost, depraved in darkness into the light. Instead of climbing up on the throne, he let himself be arrested, falsely accused, beaten, lied about, condemned to death to be put up on a cross. The deception in many that day was so much so that likely the, some of the people on the side of the road that got caught up in the fanfare about a temporary redeemer, shouting Hosanna, laying down their cloaks, might have been some of the very people when they realized he didn't come to fix their temporary stuff. They said, forget it, that's who I'm looking for. Might have been some of the very same people that yelled crucify him days later because he didn't do what I wanted him to do in my temporary stuff. Church, I just get chills. I'm just overwhelmed in the moment of how we get caught up in an overlonging for the temporary and what he's given us. Is eternal, is magnificent, and we and we shirk that, and we and we're guilty of making little of that to make much of this other stuff. And yet, He has the power to transform those things, to move and motivate us. Church, I pray that you see and savor the gospel, not just for a ticket to heaven, but to allow it to change your life in every way. Is your praise for Jesus and devotion to Jesus based on only his provision in the here and now? And if he doesn't produce the life or the protection or the circumstances that you think he should, you too then are vulnerable of being one tomorrow or next week or next month who would yell, crucify him. Forget it, I don't want it. People do this all the time. They come to church hoping for God to simply make what we have better, make it, make it work like it did before. Give us a little more of what we have, maybe. And he doesn't deliver on that, and we bail on him too. And people leave the church. Some stay, but are not truly surrendered to him, not truly trusting him, not truly enjoying him living for him 
still making it about self and religious practices. I, I pray this is not you. And I pray if it is you, that you see it, that God's loving you enough today to let you see it, that you would repent of it, you turn from it, you die to yourself. See your Savior, the true Messiah. And all that he's done. Thank God for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Thank God that we have a God who loves us despite our selfish ways. In our idol worship, in our self-worship. We have a God that rode on the back that day of a lowly donkey. Into the city that Palm Sunday knowing he's coming to bring his enemies salvation. Salvation was far beyond better policies, better taxation, a more stable economy, saving them from eternal death. For anyone who truly sees their sin today by the holy work of God and sees today your utter need for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, for a Redeemer, to see you can't save yourself, to see you're guilty of trying to make your own way. The Bible says to confess your sin, admit what it is, it's sin, and to trust your life to Him, to His Lordship, to believe in Him, and into Him, and to be redeemed and saved. And begin a journey of sanctification. When true believers of Jesus sing Hosanna today, post Jesus' death, resurrection, it means salvation has come. Salvation has come. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14, close with this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Church, realize he didn't come to redeem us to flounder in our old sinful practices, but to truly repent, to turn from them, Take up new practices, a lifestyle that glorifies God. Know that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, as as it says here. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Church, our singing Hosanna today isn't enough of a response. Shame on you if you're content with just singing this song and then going back to your lifestyle. We must live out the redemption that he's paid for us. That we are pure for his glory, a people of his own possession. You don't belong to yourself if Jesus Christ has redeemed you bought you with the high price of his blood. You belong to him, a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. This is the fruit of Christ in us, a work of God through us, the evidence of redemption and gospel renewal. May it be our testimony this week of 2018, this holy week of 2018, and for all he set before us. Stand with me as we prepare to sing Hosanna. I encourage you in this to make the singing of Hosanna today very personal. Let's make it our praise and our confidence. 
The Son of David Church has come. He has saved us from guilt and fear and hopelessness and death. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Son. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And as you sing this, realize that we join with millions of other believers around the world on this day and the heavenly host to worship his name. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this, for this hour, this time to delve into your holy word, to, to have these truths stir up our souls and unseat our comfortable places, to make war with our pride in our arrogance and our refusal to, to truly submit to you. Lord, I pray that we would release our sinful expectation that you are only a good God if you only provide for us the things that we want in the here and now, but instead we would see that you are good in and of yourself who you are. And what you've done in the gospel and grace is far beyond anything we know how to ask for when we understand it rightly. And so you have blessed us already with every heavenly blessing. You've made your face shine upon us in a way we've never known how to ask for by what you did on the hill of Calvary. And you are purposing us for the days to come testify and to work and to labor Lord here we are to to confess to repent and to worship you to sing out Hosanna salvation belongs to the Lord salvation has come we love you in Jesus name we pray amen